Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 49. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time, working out in the yard, I can get caught up on all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible, and you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible and make your smartphone smarter. Well, thanks for all your feedback. Continue to, I'd like to love to hear from you. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Dana Perino. It was a true privilege and honor to have her on the show. And uh, here's the interview. I'm so pleased to have on my show today Dana Perino. She's achieved a distinguished career in politics and public service. She currently serves as a Fox News contributor and co-host of the very popular show on Fox News, The Five, one of the highest rated shows in cable news. You probably remember Dana where she served as President George W. Bush's press secretary from 2007 to 2009. Altogether, she served more than seven years in the Bush administration. Prior to the White House, she was a spokesperson for the Department of Justice, and she did communications work for the Council on Environmental Quality. She also runs a communications business, Dana Perino and Company. She served as the editorial director of Crown Forum, the conservative imprint of Crown Publishing. She does a lot of philanthropic work, and she's also the founder of a very unique um, organization called Minute Mentoring a group that's focused on giving professional guidance and mentoring advice to young women starting out in their careers. Dana, such a thrill to have you on the show. How are you today? I'm I'm wonderful. I'm ready for a great week and honored to be a part of your program, especially because um, just when you think that uh, there's not enough people focused on uh, the career development and leadership skills of young people, uh, you meet somebody like you, so it's a real honor for me to be on your show. Well, gosh, the, the the honor is mine, and and thank you so much for those kind words. You know, we were talking a little bit before the recording, and um, you know, part of this is is kind of what what drew me to this is I'm the father of four daughters. It's one of my biggest leadership challenges is is you know raising them and teaching them leadership values, and and it's amazing to me, even though as 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 much and, and as passionate I am about leadership, I still see some a lot of these kind of um, societal um, stereotypical imprints from them, like the, the kind of the lack of confidence. And so I, I don't know, it, it's, it's a challenge for me. So tell me a little bit about Minute Mentoring, the genesis of it, and, and what makes you so passionate about mentoring young women? Well, it's been a journey for me, uh, that's for sure. I, I grew up in um, a rural area in Wyoming and Colorado. Um, I was one of two girls, the oldest of two girls. My dad was the oldest of three boys. And he grew up on a cattle ranch, um, and he went to college at University of Wyoming. And I was born in Wyoming, and then when he moved on to uh, work in Denver, Colorado, for Western Farm Bureau Life Insurance Company, um, my mom and I, and then soon came my sister, 
um, went to Denver. And I remember one of the things that my dad used to always tell us is that you two, meaning that my sister and I, Angie and I, could do anything you want to in the world. And I don't know how he knew that as a father, he needed to help provide that guidance to a daughter. Maybe all fathers do, or most fathers, and they have that instinct. One of the ways my dad carried that through was I had an assignment every day. In addition to my chores, I had to read the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post before he got home from work every day and have chosen two articles to discuss with him before dinner. And then we would discuss it. I would... Um, he would ask me my thoughts about it, and then he would give me his thoughts about it, even if he were playing devil's advocate at the time. And I think that really helped me uh, develop some skills to uh, present my case, to do so based on facts, um, based on something that I had just read, and to be able to do so with confidence in front of a male superior. So uh, my dad would have been one, other bosses as well. But certainly President Bush, later in my uh, life, um, that all came into play. And I, if I have to go back and think of one thing, I, I go to that. Now, I had a lot of other opportunities. I got to go on the speech team. Um, I went to college on a speech team scholarship. I got to work at a local television station that was on my university campus. I went to a small college, University of Southern Colorado. Um, and then fast forward to minute mentoring, the beginning of that. So I gone through the years of the White House and the Justice Department, and I was making my transition out of government into the private sector, and I got invited to give a speech at the Bipartisan Congressional Staff Association, uh, Women's Staff Association. So I did that and enjoyed talking about um, what it was like to work, and people think about government as, at least at the leadership level, as a fairly male-dominated uh sector of the economy, which is true, but not as much as some places, like in finance, for example. Right. Um, and then afterwards, I took pictures with the group. I did, I did a photo line. And I'm telling you that about 80% of the women who walked through asked if I had time to have lunch or coffee because they were looking for more specific career advice. Mm -hmm. And I would have liked to have had coffee and lunch with all of them, but I was just drowning in my schedule. So I felt guilty, and I did separately, not, not out of guilt that I felt an obligation, but I did have a lot of great opportunities, and the nation helped provide that to me, and I felt some desire to give back, because all of these young women, in my opinion, had pretty much the same questions. So when we were walking out, I was with my friend, and I said, I wonder if you could ever put together a group like they do with speed dating, and make the mentor the like the main date, and then just run these young women through with them for an hour and get several different pieces of advice from lots of different types of uh, women and experiences so that they could get it all in one fell swoop. And I had that idea, and about 10 months later, so I was still churning on what a great idea that was. I hadn't moved forward on it. But then I um, saw Susan Molinari and Dee Martin, they're both of Gracewell Giuliani. Susan right. Molinari was a member of Congress at the time, and now she runs uh, public affairs for Google. But they were working for Bracewell and Giuliani, and they said, well, what's holding you back? And I said, well, I've got to figure out a way to have it. i got to find the venue, and I've got to find some money to have the, the pay for the event. I don't really have the organizational skills. And they said, oh, well, we'll do that. Hmm. 
And that's how Minute Mentoring was officially founded. And we've done lots of different events since. And they're always wonderful. I learn a ton from them as well. Yeah, you know, mentoring and, and learning from, from um other people that mentors have been such a huge influence in my life. Obviously in yours, you've had some great ones, uh, obviously working for president Bush, but what you, you said back in there that some of the, you know, a lot of the questions are the same. What are some of those questions that everybody seems to be asking you? And what is some of the best advice that you're giving some of these young women? The main questions are usually along these lines. Um, do you think that I should go to business school or law school to advance my career? Um, how do you manage to find balance in life, a work-life balance? Um, why is it that it seems like the guys get a promotion more quickly than the gals in the office? And then another one, especially for younger women, is, you know, I've been somebody's assistant for the last several years. I want to make a move into marketing or management or communications or sales. But I don't feel like anyone is taking me seriously. You know, what should I do? Um, some of the advice that I give, I always ask the mentors to come with three pieces of advice. One of them I say is that reality TV can be poison for your brain. Mm. And the best thing that you can do is give yourself, pick your favorite program, maybe give yourself half an hour to enjoy that program, and then turn it off mm-hmm. and read. And read all sorts of different things. Um, I had one mentor, she recommended that young women read the classics because reading the classics will make you a better writer mm-hmm. and, a, and a better thinker. I love that advice. Yeah. A lot of people tell you to read more, but I thought that that specific was very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I also tell young women to not be afraid to move. This is a big problem for some women, sometimes in rural areas, but not necessarily. You know, people want to be near their family. Right. That's natural. But in order to advance in a career, often you have to go someplace and see something and experience something else that will help you advance in a career where you can then move back home, whether that be in Manhattan or South Dakota. Um, I always tell them, be, be willing to get out of your comfort zone. Go and find a place where you're going to get lost and have to find the grocery store and make new friends uh, and see other things. And that helps build your network. And that was the third thing I always recommended, which is I have had a tradition where I send a lot of handwritten notes. Another uh, thing that my dad required was I always had to write thank you notes on my birthday before my birthday, before I went to bed that night. Um, I, every Sunday we wrote a letter to one of our grandparents. Um, and I just sort of stuck with that tradition because I realized how much people love to get a a bright little note in the mail. Right. Even if it doesn't, if you don't have to be asking for anything, you don't have to be thanking them in particular. Just send a nice little note and keep your network up because that's really how I ended up back in government after I had that small, like short hiatus um, from working in Congress to working for the Bush administration when I moved to England and met my husband and um, was living in San Diego. I came back to work for the Bush administration after 9-11 because... My friend, Mindy Tucker, who I'd stayed in touch with over the years, was then Ashcroft's chief of staff, or a communications director, and she asked me after 9-11 if I'd be willing to come back and join their team, and of course I was. But she would never have thought of me, or I never would have been on her radar screen if I hadn't took the initiative to stay in contact with her. Yeah. You know, that's interesting, having the ability... 
you said it's a it's a problem for um, a lot of people. I guess particularly you said women they don't want to move. I I never heard that before, but that I guess that that does kind of make some sense. But um, having oh the- certainly that's true. Um, and, and moms and dads, as well intentioned as they are, they don't want their um, younger ones to leave the nest, or they they want to have them close. Um, and there's pressure. You know, you feel like you need to stay around. One of the best things that a parent can do is to encourage their children to be able to go out and do things and take that semester abroad or go volunteer in Africa for a while or um, find an Indian reservation that you'd like to go and, and teach um, for a little bit. Um, do a major road trip all across the country. You know, if you're living in Manhattan and you're in middle management and you really want to move up but the only job is in Fort Wayne, Indiana, then you should go to Fort Wayne, Indiana. Great advice. I really think that, that uh, you'll, you'll see now that I've said this, You'll start to see it other places. People don't like to move. Yeah. It's so, I've thinking about it, as you said, and it's so true. And, you know, and of course, I was in the Marine Corps and I traveled all over the world. And and one of the best Mm -hmm. experiences that, that, you know, and it was was late in life. And, you know, I was in my mid twenties when I I was all over the world and you saw so many different things. And I'm thinking about it and I would come back home and I would think about the bulk of the people, the bulk of my old friends and everybody else. They haven't left really this, this spot. And they really are missing, you know, it's not to maybe, it's not so much criticizing them, but you do miss out on a lot if you don't experience. There's so much world to experience out there. So I think that's great advice. And it can also really help your career. You never necessarily know. You can't map out your whole career. No. But well, if the more people you know and experiences that you've had, the bigger that network gets. And then if you keep your eyes and ears open for opportunities, yeah. And I will take a risk. And, you know, that's a really important thing as well is, just being willing to take a risk and to fail. Yeah, I love that. Uh, that is such a hard thing to do. And I learned a lot about that from President Bush. He talks about how he was able to do the things in his life because he had the unconditional love of someone that he cared about, and that happened to be his parents. It's not always parents for everybody, but, um, but it might be just somebody who loves you unconditionally and lets you know that what's the worst that can happen to you. Right. So you're gonna, you want to start a business. What if it doesn't work in six months? Okay, well, we'll reevaluate and we'll do something else. Especially for people who live here in America, the greatest country on earth, with the most opportunity that if you apply yourself, if you give it a go, you can have wild success. Or you just might have mild success, and that might be okay for you. Or you could fail. And what's the worst that could happen to you? Bankruptcy? Okay, well, we've got ways to deal with that. Right. If you, as long as you are willing to take a risk to try to do something great and interesting, you will find some personal satisfaction as well as possibly career success. You know, I think, you know, talking, as a, when I started this podcast, you know, I'm in my 12th week and I'm coming on 50 interviews and talking to some of these great people and some of them are entrepreneurs, multimillionaires, successful. And one of the things that always strikes me is the, the, um, what you just said there about the willingness to take risk and, it's not so much about the goal, it's about the journey. And what's amazing to me is, is what everybody all has in common, especially these, especially the entrepreneurial sect of it and, and the people who are striving for success is they, they fail tremendously and they fail a lot. It's the, the difference mm-hmm. is, is the kind of, um, resiliency or the ability to bounce back. And we all have that ability. I think that's what's so true is that we all have this limiting belief that we could not deal with the failure. And it's what you're just hitting on in the point there is like, what, what's the worst going to happen? Bankruptcy? And everybody thinks, oh my gosh, that would be, you know, the end of the world. 
There are so many stories or and examples. Embarrassment. Yeah, or you know, embarrassment. Um, you're right. Nobody likes to be uh, embarrassed or, or to disappoint others, especially if you have employees. Um, that's one of the reasons our small business sector is so successful in America because if you start adding employees and you're, you know that you are the one responsible to making the payroll because that's how your employee's family is going to pay for their life, you know, their food, their clothing, uh, soccer camp, and all those other things that come with life. There is, uh, you have more motivation to make sure that you're successful. Yeah. Gosh, I no- even went through that after I left the White House. I started my own little business. Well, I joined a PR firm, and then I was going to start my own little business. Um, and I was so nervous about it. And finally, I said to myself, uh, I made myself a mantra, and I would just constantly ask myself, what's the worst that could happen? Right. And I wrote it down. I wrote down on a piece of paper what the worst thing that could happen was if I failed, and I put that in my wallet, and I carried it around with me so that if I got nervous, I could look at it again. And look, I used to speak on behalf of the United States. You would think that I wouldn't have any problem with confidence, but especially for women, you, women talk negatively to themselves from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed. It's a constant battle to to always remind yourself that you're not as bad as you think you are. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Um, and Tony Snow, the press secretary of the White House before me, when I was taking over for him, he said, how are you doing? I said, well, not very well. And he said, um, he said, well, I bet you come over here for a second. I did. And he put his hands on my shoulder and he looked me in the eye and he said, you are better at this than you think you are. That's awesome. And about two weeks later, I was finishing a briefing. And that evening on a Friday night, I remember thinking, oh, I see what he meant. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be just like him. I can be myself. And if I'm myself, then I'll be okay. I'm yeah. better at it than I thought I was because I thought I needed to be like him. Yeah. Oh, I love that story. You know, that reminds me too of my oldest daughters. And, and, and that's what kind of drives me crazy. I said about the leadership challenge is like, why are you beating yourself up? You know, but me and my wife are guilty of that too. But I see it a lot in my oldest daughter and I can't, I'm like, what, you know, what you just said just kind of reminded me of, of how she responds. She's very critical of herself. And from the moment mm-hmm. she gets up to the moment she goes to bed and she has so much freaking talent, you know, and so much opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, um, you're right. And, and I think all of us, and, you know, and, and I don't think it's necessarily just, and, and maybe it is. I mean, maybe you, you know, maybe women are more prone to it, but I'm guilty of it too. I mean, you know, we all have these limiting beliefs and we beat ourselves up. And, um, I think that's why having mentors and those positive influence like Tony Snow, I mean, what a great story, you know, and, 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 yeah. ha- and having that, um, well, gosh, you know, you've had so many eyewitness to so many leadership moments in history and, and having, President uh, Bush as a, as a mentor and a follower. And it was, the timing was great, you know, in this interview. And I watched, you know, like I said, we, um, I was watching you a week and a half ago at this dedication ceremony. And you know, the thing that struck me, and of course I was a President Bush fan and people might think I'm biased, but I don't, you know, I look at that, at that ceremony and I watched those five presidents set, standing up there. And it was so apparent to me the class, the depth and the grace of President Bush, you, you can t- definitely with with Obama being office for as long as he has been now, there is there is a stark contrast. So tell me a little bit about that experience and and kind of the leadership qualities of President Bush. Well, one of the things I always talk about is leadership from a follower's perspective, um, and that's as you were in the Marines, right? So you 
you better have a general that you that makes you want to get up every morning at four o'clock. Yeah. And to do your very best on their behalf. Well, that's how I felt about President Bush. Um, I would, you know, if, when I got to the White House at six twenty, he was already there. Hmm. In the in West Wing, already working. Um, and we were very, we had a lot of stressful times. Believe me, we, you know, sometimes it felt like we just went lurched from crisis to crisis. But his leadership was steady, and he would ask the right questions, and I would see him do the right thing, even if it was politically unpopular, um, such as the bank bailout. I watched that from beginning to end, and it turned out to have been the right thing to do, but it was extremely unpopular mm-hmm. um, at the time. So finally, when we get to the dedication, it's four and a half years later since we left the White House, and it felt like we were able to put a period at the end of the chapter mm-hmm. to launch him into history and let him just thrive in a post-presidency environment where he's still doing a lot on the policy side. I love the Institute, uh, the purpose of it being spreading freedom, uh, freedom from poverty and disease, uh, free markets, um, and respecting those who fought for our freedom, um, veterans. So it was very exciting. Uh, you might have seen I cried through my whole live shot during the five that day. Yeah. But they were happy and nostalgic tears. And there was a young woman who worked at Fox um, for quite a while. She hadn't, um, there wasn't any room to move up. You know, she was sort of in that place in your career where you think, well, if I'm not going to be able to move up, do I need to move on? And one of the things I encouraged her to do because she was interested in politics was to find somebody that you believe in and go and work on their behalf and then you might have memories like I have as well. And well, guess what? Now she's working for Governor Chris Christie and doing great. And awesome. having a blast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. You know, despite what the pop cultural narrative has been about the man, I think, you know, and I think you're right. You're putting the period on, on a, that, that was a great way to, to summarize that. I said, you know, despite what everybody says about him or, you know, the guy, again, the pop culture narrative, you cannot deny the decency, the character, and the love that he has for this country. And it was so evident, you know, in his speech, um, a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I don't know. I think that, uh, I think history will be kind to him in the, in the long run. I think it, it will show. And I think you, you saw the beginnings of that last, last week. Yeah. And you know what's great though is that no one believes that more than he does. Yeah. Not that he thinks that history is going to be kind to him. What he says is we don't know. So you can't dwell on it in this life. You have to have made the decisions you made based on the best information that you've had. And all we have is right now. And that he'll be long dead before anyone decides if the presidency was successful or not. Um, if you look at President Lincoln, that was certainly true. When he was assassinated, he was a very unpopular president, That's even right. though he had saved the nation from ruin. Yep. But that wasn't realized until decades later. That's true. What were some of the greatest leadership lessons you learned from working with him? Um, humility is, um, you know, there are sometimes, especially as a PR person, you want to dance in the end zone for any sort of victory you can, uh, you've achieved. Like when we passed the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and I was getting ready to go out to do the briefing, and I was pretty excited that we finally got it done, and he said, don't gloat. Yeah. He had... Because he realized that a lot of those members of Congress had taken a very tough vote, made a tough decision that was going to be unpopular in their districts, and it was not going to help them explain it if we were there dancing in the end zone. Um, another time, remember when the hostages were being held in Colombia? Yeah. 
and they were rescued. I was in the Oval Office when he got the call from the CIA director, and I didn't even know the operation was happening until it was over. And he hung up the phone, and I said, what was that about? And he told me. And I said, oh, so can I tell the press when the news breaks that you got the call at 4.12 p.m., and you were in the Oval Office, and, uh, you know, I was trying to find something that would be a good story for him uh, about his leadership and, and the willingness to take a risk to help save the lives of those hostages. And you know what he said? What? Oh, I don't need any credit. <laughs> Give all the credit to President Uribe of Colombia. He needs it more than I do. And the reason he said that is because we were in the middle of trying to get the Colombia Free Trade Agreement passed. One of the complaints from Democrats, which was a false complaint, I think, but one of their excuses, was they felt that President Uribe had not been tough enough on terrorism and on the... Um, I can't remember the name of the gang down there um, in Colombia. But President Uribe had been a partner with President Bush on this operation to save the hostages. And he would not let me, to this day, well, now I'm saying it on your podcast, but I didn't. I was never able to tell people about it before. Wow. So there's this strength and humility, humility behind the scenes. And part of that is, can you wake up every day and go to bed at night feeling like you were true to yourself? Yeah. And if so, you're going to sleep easy, and you're going to do great things in your life. And I also learned a lot from him about the quality of the leadership quality of forgiveness. Mm. In politics, people can say some really mean things about one another, and as a PR person, in particular, the first thing you want to do is defend and lash back. And he would always want us to turn the other cheek and forgive. And in one particular case, there was a former staff person that I saw had, no, I wasn't the only one, but he wrote a book that I thought was quite a betrayal um, to the loyalty that we had all built over the years. And I also thought the book was unfair and most of it um, questionable on the truth. And I was really upset about it, but I hadn't said anything to the president, but one of the senior aides knew that I was upset about it. Mm -hmm. He told the president, the president called me into the Oval Office at 6.40 in the morning and said, I want you to try to forgive him. Because through forgiving, you alleviate any bitterness that is going to hold you back from being your full self. And I said, well, can I throw him under the bus first? <laughs> and he said, no. <laughs> Man, you know. And then as I was leaving, he said, by the way, I don't think you'd ever do this to me. <laughs> and that was good leadership because he understood me better than I understood myself. You know, that's so awesome. I think, I God, I don't know if I could deal with that, you know, especially with all the criticism. <laughs> and he... I, yeah, that, that truly is a, a mark of a great leader. You know, one of the things that I've always said, people have heard me say on this show, one of my philosophies and some of the great mentors that I've had, they've always said, you know, it's not, and, and I get this from flying multi-crew aircraft too. We, the, the environment that you create in the cockpit is so critical. And a lot of things that I say in my briefings and to my people and to when I'm flying planes is like, look, it's not your right to challenge me. It's your obligation. You know, you, you got to think at the ultimate office when you're in the presidency you know you, you get this kind of group you know it's been documented and you've know, seen it in this, this kind of this group think mentality you know, like no one wants to give bad news to the president what was it like did people could people give uh george bush the bad news could they tell him hey i think that's a bad idea sir how was he receptive yeah. to yeah i sensed that well but. if you were going to say that then you needed to you know be, you needed to be able to back it up sure um, so that was one of the things I also learned. Like, you, 
as a young woman in particular, maybe this is true of everybody, but for me, um, I was a younger woman as the press secretary of the United States. I had the full confidence of the president, but I didn't have to prove anything to others, but I was determined to do my best for him every day. So that meant I needed to be more informed and prepared than anybody else in the room. And, you know, if you, if I, I wouldn't always speak up if, if I didn't have any role in something. I, I didn't speak up just to speak up. But even if sometimes if I wasn't directly involved, but I saw or heard something that I thought, I don't think that's a good idea, or I wouldn't say it that way, or wait, what about this? We forgot, don't you remember X or Y? Um, I, I have a philosophy, this is one of my mentoring tips, that um, you have to learn to be willing to give bad news. Yeah. But you have to understand the person to whom you are giving the news. So I was a bad news first, good news second type of person. Mm. If I had something negative to, to report, then I would follow it up with, and here's how I'm planning to deal with it, or here's what I recommend we do. Um, or uh, on the one hand, sir, this happened, but on the other hand, you know, the sun came up this morning, <laughs> or whatever it might be. Right. Um, and that's, that way you're not, if, you have, if your person has to give bad news a lot, um, then you have to understand your audience and adapt to them. How challenging was it to be? I mean, I, I think of all the jobs, um, press secretary has to be one of the most stressful. Um, dealing with the press is never fun. So tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of the, the head games, the internal fortitude, the compartmentalization that you had to go through to be to deal with the press. Well, I actually liked the reporters. Um, I was fond of them, and we had a good relationship. I, I always thought that my job, 50% of it was to defend the president and promote his policies, and the other 50% was to defend the press and to make sure that they continue to have the access that our Constitution oh, yeah. um, assures for them. And, yeah, there were times I'd get annoyed at their tone or maybe they hadn't realized any nuance or they were trying to trap me, but I was smarter than they were on that stuff. Um, but I was also, I tried to be kind to them. They had a job that they had to do. They had to call their editors and explain X or Y or why they didn't get the quote or how come they couldn't have the interview with the president or whatever it might be. Um, and I'm friendly with most of them now. There's one that's been in the deep freeze with me since January of 2009. I'll never speak to him again, but he knows it, and we actually laugh about it through third parties. <laughs> I can't even remember what he did. I know it was an article that I didn't like, and I thought was uh, he had taken advantage of an interview situation and then sucker punched us. Um, so I put him in a deep freeze, which means that you can't talk to him. Nobody on my team was allowed to talk to him for the rest of the administration. <laughs> so as we wrap up here, tell me a little bit more about some of the philanthropic work. I was reading a little bit about, um, um, gosh, you're involved with the quite a few things. Oh, her name escapes me. She used to work for, um, uh, she started the One Foundation or, uh, Oh, Susan McHugh? Yeah. Are you still, do you still work with her? Are you still, um, I don't. I, I was, uh, I don't, but we are very friendly. Susan McHugh was the chief of staff for Harry Reid for many years. And now she has her own sliding business, but she is a wonderful public servant at the same time of having that business. She serves on the broadcasting board of governors, which is what I served on as well. And the BBG actually oversees, um, uh, you'll be most familiar with Voice of America. Right. So she works on that. We got to go to Africa together, and we both share an interest in maternal uh, maternal health as well as early childhood development um, as, one, the right thing to do around the world, but also um, for our national security interests as well. Hopeless societies um, 
grow more um, militant over time if they don't have any reason to be hopeful. And one of those reasons is that if, if the moms aren't healthy, if the moms pass away in childbirth, and if the children aren't taken care of well before the age of five, there's so many of them die around the world. And we have ways that we can help that, prevent that. And I think I'm all for America being very engaged in the world. I love being the leader of the free world. And that means something to me. Mm-hmm. It means other things. It means, it means something to all of us as Americans. For some, it means not intervening. And I can understand that. But from my personal experience, I think that America is a force for good in the world. And I'd like to see us out there more and more. So hopefully this year I'm going to get a chance to go on something called Mercy Ship. Mercy Ship? Which shift? is a charitable, yeah, it's a, a charitable hospital ship run completely on private donations and staffed by volunteer doctors and nurses. And they go to all of the port cities of West Africa and do amazing work, surgeries for people with cataracts or there's a particular um, tumor uh, that grows uh in one of the tribes there that um, they're quite un- unseemly on the face, but it makes it very hard for them to be able to eat, and it can choke off their windpipe. Mm. It, this is something that um, in America, if your tooth enamel won't stop growing, then a dentist here will be able to deal with it right away And when we go every six months. A lot of these people have never even heard of a dentist. Um, right. So they're, doing, they're saving lives up and down the coast of Africa, all with volunteers, private donations, no government money, so I'm hoping this year I'm going to go with my husband, Peter, for a week uh, to Mercy Ships, and I'm going to figure out some sort of creative social media way to take my followers along with me electronically so that they, too, can see the benefits of a generous American heart oh, that's giving awesome. back to a world that really deserves more of our leadership. Well, Danny, I'm a true fan of yours. You're obviously doing some great work. I mean, aside from the fact that, uh, you know, I love watching the five, but I mean, I love the fact that you're involved and you're passionate about this country and, um, you're passionate about women leadership and, and setting good examples for young women. Something I'm very interested, interested in with four daughters. And, um, how can they find you? How can people help? Where do, where can people find you? I know you get to, you're, you're pretty easy to find if you Google it, but is there something specific that you want people to, to yeah, go well, to? Yeah, well, I'm, I am a big fan of Twitter. So people can follow me at Dana Perino. Um, and I put a lot of my promotional stuff on there. So if I'm going to do something with Africa or Minute Mentoring, uh, you can find it there. Um, also, The Five, which is a 5 p.m. show on Fox News. I'm on every day, and uh, I enjoy that very much. And then um, there is a website as well, DanaPerino.com. There's a Facebook page as well. I just got, um, I try to, I'm trying to keep it a little bit more organized, but uh, Facebook, Twitter, and my website, those are the best places to keep get caught up. Perfect. I'll have links to all those in the post when I get this interview posted. Dana, thanks for <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. It's been a true true privilege and honor. I'd like to, especially as you get going on that mercy mercy ship thing, um if um, we can talk about that. I could certainly promote that too if you want to give me a highlight, especially um when you're on there. Maybe that's something we can do another podcast when you're on the ship or do something. I don't know. Maybe there's something we can do. Yeah. I well, I'd love that. I'm going to get creative and hopefully hear from them in the next couple of weeks and get it all set up. Awesome. Dana, thanks for coming on the show. Okay, thanks so much. We'll see you. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. 
Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.